Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Podcast listeners, welcome again to Making Data Simple. On the program today, without further ado, my guest, Michael Haas. He is the CEO and founder of Plant Jammer. Plant Jammer is a five-year-old food tech startup that uses AI to help people cook. They're a team of 15 data scientists and chefs based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, their app, Plant Jammer, is used by, what, 200,000 people globally? And the widgets and API have more than 20 customers among food brands and, and retailers. This was founded in 2016 by Michael, who was formerly a McKinsey consultant. I have to talk to you about that, too, as I've been doing some services of my own. And it does have an IBM connection where I am. I don't often mention IBM in the podcast, uh, but we do have a lot of IBMers. The technology won the IBM Watson AI Prize for 2018, so I need to talk about that. Not to mention there's all other kinds of uh, recognition. I think it was Creative Business Cup 2018, Green Entrepreneur of the Year Award by Veggie World, many others. Wow. I, I tell you, Michael, thank you for reaching out. This is a, a very interesting discussion. I'm going to turn it over to you. Be self-serving here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your experience, and what brings you to us. Absolutely. Al. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, yeah, Michael, uh, as you just heard, I mean, you said it better than I ever could. Uh, <laughs> but I'm the CEO and founder of, of Plant Jammer. I decided after, you know, working in, in McKinsey Consultancy, working a lot with energy and agriculture, working on the topic of sustainability, I decided that actually food is something interesting because within food, we have an ability, all of us, to actually make a difference on a daily basis. And unlike energy, for instance, you don't need you know, infrastructure projects or big capital or regulation for that matter. It's just you and your habits. And that's really powerful. So, so we decided to go down a pathway where we're using AI and some of the best tools we can find out there to make it easier to cook something that is uh, good for your health and good for the planet at the same time. Um, so that's what we decided to do. And we've been doing that for six years, building a team, getting great investors on board, fantastic customers. I'm loving my days, just talking both to my customers and my investors and uh, building uh, the kind of future we want to see. Are you using data that is tied to the user, their nutrition, their the flavors they're interested in to expand a certain dish? I mean, have you progressed that far or are you using the data in a different manner? Yeah, we totally do. Basically, we put layers of personalization on this. So the first layer is basically we have a generic widget that works for the average person. And, you know, it's been trialed and tested with by now hundreds of thousands of people, right? And, and that works for most people. Then there's the next level, which is basically when we work with particular brands or retailers, we get to understand who their customer is based on their behavior. We see those patterns. We bring it back to them in this beautiful little spider diagrams that shows what kind of personas their customers actually are when they cook. And then we adapt their particular widget for their, their sort of uh, persona type. And then there's that last level, which is where we actually in completely individualize, which is where we both based on someone's existing behavior in the, in the widget, but mainly based on a small questionnaire where we actually asking the people about their health goals, what they want to eat more of, what they want to eat less of what kind of flavors are important to them, what kind of cuisines they like. And based on that, we create these masks on ingredients and on dishes that are then 
making it completely personalized for you. And you basically get back that spider diagram of your own flavor, your own nutrition and how it looks. And it all plays together, right? Because the more we have of people who go all the way to personalization, the more we can also put really good personas out there. So that when we talk to a food brand, we fast and easy can identify what kind of customers they have. And it's interesting because uh, once you know what people like, once you have a really good profile of the kind of dishes, the kind of flavors, the kind of nutrition that is important for people, you actually know a lot about them. So it's a really, really powerful thing to have as a, as a company to know what persona my customers are in the kitchen, because that tells a lot about who they are generally. Are people open to this? In other words, I presume, you know, if you're using, I know people want to have more than 10 different meal rotations. However, do they? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's like, you know, do they take the advice or they keep coming back to their, what they're comfortable with? No. So the whole idea is that we don't actually need to uh, to change their behavior dramatically. Because what we do is actually the, the core principle of, of at least the early part of experiencing uh, the, the widget is that we don't try to get you beyond your 10. Rather, we identify what are your core 10. Like let's say a core 10 is a stir fry, burrito, pizza, pasta, right? And five other. Um, those 10 can actually become a lot of diversity. Right? Because you can make a million different kinds of burritos, right? You can make a million different kinds of pastas and pizzas. And suddenly you can be very comfortable with what you do, your steps you make, the kind of cooking you do. You can don't keep your routines, but you do it with dramatically different ingredients. So suddenly your um, your burrito tastes Indian uh, and your and your pizza tastes uh, Mexican, right? And it gets protein rich or it gets carb light. Let's get antioxidant boosted, right? So you're really sort of adapting your existing habits to fit with your flavor and your, your nutritional goals. And that way you get diversity, but you don't have to completely change the way you act in the kitchen. That's kind of what I was going for. I presume you had a an algorithm that slowly pulls people along and then see if you can push the envelope a little bit, but not enough to make them go completely out of their comfort zone. I presume that'd be bad for business too. They, if they go, you go too far, they'd be like, the hell with this. I'm going back to my normal burrito here. <laughs> I think it's just so smart, right? Because yeah. the hard part is learning new techniques. When, you, when you're first braising for the first time, right? You're like, what am I doing here? I don't know how to do that. But then once you figure it out, now if you expand your ingredient base, you can still use that same technique. So I love the idea of tackling the flavors within a dish as a starting point. That makes so much sense. That's really cool. That's really cool. It's like, it's, it's, thank you. It's, it's a core principle in, in behavioral sciences that you don't want to change more than one parameter at a time, right? So, uh, so stick to your normal behavior, just do small adaptations. One of the big surprises we have is when we have asked people to fill out these surveys about what they like, and it's just 10 questions. It takes less than two minutes, but you actually get a lot of data understanding from that when you and you see those patterns and you generalize that with other people doing similar things. And what we learn after those answers, we give them these beautiful charts of what flavors and nutrition they like. But actually, the most impactful thing we bring back to them is based on our neural network, what are the 10 spices that you should really consider trying out in your kitchen? And what are the 10 bulky ingredients that you should consider using in your kitchen? 
Because that's actually really actionable for people. If they suddenly have four new spices they never thought of using and learning that, you know, coriander seeds or cinnamon can be used, you know, much more aggressively or galangal root or whatever can be used in your kitchen and it will fit your flavor profile. And it's, by the way, antioxidant rich, so really good for you. You cook in normal dishes and you just, you know, put a little bit of uh, coriander seeds on top and you realize, wow, I'm cooking different, even though I'm doing almost nothing different. Do you take that further and almost give them a recipe? Are they implied to, or they have to, to add it themselves? We do. That's exactly what the, the widget does. So basically what happens is after you fill out the survey, you get these results uh, that I told you about, including the 10 top 10s. And then you get the widget that's completely personalized because that widget, we added uh, masks, they're called, which is basically a function or neural network that adapts everything in the direction of your personalization. So all recipes suddenly are adapted, are based on the, the, the suggested recipes and what's coming in the recipes and the suggested uh, food pairings and suggested substitutions are based on you and your preferences. So suddenly everything in that widget is yours. It's your personal cooking assistant. Is there a core database of like 100,000 recipes that you'll gravitate? Are these recipes that are made up on the fly? What we've done is actually we took a meta step to this. So what we learned in the early days, we worked a lot with uh, with Mark Bittman over in your site. So he had this principle of saying there's actually only 10 recipes in the world. And every recipe is basically a branch out of those core 10 recipes. If you know how to make a risotto, you know how to make a dal. It's, it's basically, a, it's, it's different ingredients, different pathways, but it's actually the same tools. And for, for these reasons, we found more that 600 <laughs> than eight, 600 different kinds of dish types. And if you know those methods and those 600, you can make anything. And then you can adapt with other kinds of ingredients and so on. But basically we build the core principle to template recipes for these 600 core kinds that you can then branch out based on your ingredient choices uh, and make. But we made them. We, uh, we made them as a generalization on the learnings from the 3 million recipes that we sort of looked at on the web and realized these are the patterns. These are the kind of recipes. These are the ingredients you can have in them. These are the ones you cannot. These are the core components in this dish. These are the sort of ratios of volumes between ingredients in them. These are the steps you have to take, the volumes in terms of also the heating and the, the times for particular ingredients in them. Build that whole logic so that you can take a risotto and make it Indian. And, and then still would make sense. Um, it will start you know, flirting with becoming a dal, but it will be a risotto. Uh, and it will have some core principles behind, but will keep the integrity of the dish. That's the core principle of what we do is we actually don't build recipes. We build what we call dishes, which is a level above that can become millions of, of, of recipes, each of them. And I also get the nutrition facts along the way if I'm trying to meet or achieve a, a nutritional target? Yeah, exactly. So because we, we're calculating everything there, we basically have the volumes in a very annotated way that's super easy to, to add nutrition on top. So you're, you're both setting nutritional targets and getting recipes that fit it, and then you're getting the feedback loop in terms of what's in that actual recipe as well. So pause for a second. We'll get back to the technology. You got to tell me a little bit more about your experience. So, I mean, you were at McKinsey Consulting. Are you like a chef too? Are you a foodie? <laughs> Give me some history here. How do you come to this realization where one way or another, you're a chef? I mean, you're having the tool do it for you. But what's your history? 
Yeah, so actually, I'm definitely not a chef by training, but I have definitely become so. I think what happened to me was actually working in McKinsey. And before McKinsey, I worked in Merrill Lynch investment banking. So I spent a lot of hours in the office, right? And um, coming home from a, you know, let's say 80-hour work week, it's not like you cook a lot, right? Uh, and and I basically uh, came out of that experience thinking there's a survival skill that I have to you know, get, which is cooking. So I wanted to do that, but I brought in sort of the the McKinsey sort of approach to problem solving into cooking here of rather than just saying, let's do what everyone else does and just follow some recipes, let's structure it. Like let's actually build some core principles that are behind. Uh, so I, had, I started with a lot of Excel sheets and PowerPoints of like, what am I actually learning when I see this recipe? What is the general principle behind? And started building those principles. Um, so it's basically taken back to first principles of what is cooking and then slowly sort of uh, rebuilding those individual recipes based on those principles. Uh, but it was based on me just really wanting to get the survival skill on, under my hood because I felt bad conscience about my grandmother asking me, can you cook? And me not really being able to say yes with full conviction. <laughs> I think <laughs> I still have the answer the same. Long pathway from there. <laughs> you know, I hate to admit this to you. Over the last couple of days, you know, as I'm sitting on the couch doing, you know, work late at night, as we do, like we were saying earlier, always staring at the screen. My wife has been watching. Selena Gomez has a cooking show. Do you know Selena Gomez? Because she was in quarantine, she doesn't know how to cook. So she's calling all these professional chefs and they're teaching her via video podcast how to cook. It's kind of funny and kind of interesting as well. I don't know that it's healthy, by the way. Because it's, you know, a lot of butter and everything else, but it's very interesting. Are you eating any of the same meals? I mean, now, like, is every meal a different meal now that you have this technology at hand? Yeah, totally. Um, so I definitely eat my own dog food in this uh, in this perspective. So basically, that this is what I do now. I basically had to, right? Uh, because I have to always give feedback to the developers, the designers about experiences. So I have to lift this product. I, I've been pushing myself in the direction, of course, but now I'm also hooked. I like the fact that I don't know what I'm going to be cooking before the moment I open the fridge. And, and that it always feels like a good experience. Like I always have this sort of, I did this feeling when I've cooked. <laughs> Not like I followed someone else's step perfectly. I got inspiration from, from this tool uh, and, uh, and jammed with it uh, and, and built my, my little creation. And it's just one of those success experiences uh, that you, uh, you you should give yourself. I really feel good when I've made a meal that's you know unique and and it's not like I've spent hours preparing for it. It's a twenty minute, thirty minute effort, and you made something you're proud of. So, yeah, definitely eat the dog food. <laughs> you know, it strikes me that you're not going to get a lot of sympathy from the team when you say, "Hey, I got to take one for the team here. I got to go try all this food." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go have a good time. Tough job, but someone's got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, not exactly a lot of sympathy from your, your developers. So we haven't talked about AI, which is very important to me. You did mention neural networks, but where does AI come in? you got to tell us how you won, you know, if you got the IBM Watson AI prize in 2018, you know, that had to be some significant, I mean, is it, you're not just playing around. Uh, so, so tell me about it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually many, many, many rounds where we use AI in this, uh, but the core uh, sort of, um, yeah, the, the core pillar of, uh, of our AI engine is the food pairing part. So the, the beautiful part of food is that there is, you know, open source data everywhere in terms of recipes everywhere. And uh, we're not copying any recipes, so uh, no, not infringing any rights there, but we have gone in and seen all recipes and just created data sets of 
sets of ingredients. So we don't need to know that this is a pomegranate-based uh, dal soup, but we just need to know that there's dal and there's curry and there's turmeric and there's pomegranate and there's raisins and so on. And that set of ingredients, we give an AI to build a neural network of food pairings. Because basically we all these recipes are basically annotated ways of describing you know, habits and culture related to food across the world. So we took an, a neural network to basically learn from all those and said, oh, are you, what do you see of patterns? And then it just every recipe is basically a vote that these nine ingredients go well together. And we're collecting all those votes in a neural network that then starts seeing patterns. And then it actually will know that, you know, given you have uh, avocado and tomato and cumin, the next likely ingredient here is olive oil or um garlic because you're going to make a guacamole right uh, so it actually sees those patterns very easily and that's the first part is really the food pairing part where we basically learn from habits what goes well together and that gets us to propose things then we'll add a layer of uh, cognition on top which is basically saying we try to annotate an ingredients based on all kinds of things you know what aromas are there is it umami is it oily uh, is it red you know all kinds of aspects and just started seeing, are there any patterns that arise when we show these mappings? And then we learned there are very clear patterns that every chef will, by the way, recognize, which is what we call the gastro wheel. So basically any savory dish for dinner uh, has uh, something sour, something sweet, something umami, something bitter, something crunchy, something oily, something aromatic. Those seven things. If you have those seven things, you balance them, you can make something tasteful. Right? So we annotate all ingredients based on those seven things and a few other things that we found important. And then we're actually going through the gastro wheel, building a recipe on the spot right there, putting the layer of you know your personal preferences on top and the food pairing of which kinds of umami do you want in here. So that's the sort of cognitive layer on top of the AI when it comes to the food pairing and building a recipe. Then on top of this, we're, we're having behavior on a, you know, minute by minute basis of people in the app and in the widgets making choices. So they are seeing a recipe, taking out the cilantro because they hate cilantro and feel like it tastes like soap. So that might just be them. But nevertheless, there's other people who consistently, or there might be a lot of people who consistently, you know, take out pomegranate when they see it along with raisins. And we realize, okay, pomegranate raisins might not be a great pair. We're going to, we actually have the, the engine learning from that and making sure that pomegranate and raisins don't come up as often. Uh, so learning on that on top as well in the food pairing part. Similarly for, for dishes where we actually start seeing certain kinds of people, you know, these seven people, they all have, you know, picked dal a lot of times, but they never pick pasta. So probably people pick dal a lot, they don't need to see pastas, right? That is also a whole neural network, much like the Netflix algorithm that basically looks at these are the movies you've seen. Other people who saw these movies, they also like this movie. Same thing here, where basically we're saying these are the dishes you've been cooking. Other people who made those dishes, they also like this dish. So you should be proposing that. And that's proposing the dish types to people up front. Yeah, those was just a few sort of uh, samples of places where we use AI. Probably those are the core on the food pairing and on the dish type suggestion aspects. And uh, that effort, I mean, I don't know if you put your name in the hat for uh, some kind of competition. I mean, how, how did you end up with the IBM Watson AI Prize? Uh, the IBM uh, Watson Prize was uh, based on a, on a conference we were pitching telling our story of what we do, the technology, and basically telling the full, full shebang of uh, the neural network and how it works and how it, how it operates. Do you have plans or have you thought about, I'm sure you've thought about, of entering 
DNA, blood type, you know, into what the choices are. The reason I asked that is because I got this whole book like right behind my shoulder over here. Somebody gave me about, you know, based on blood type and, you know, like, I don't know, there's a 23andMe connection or whatever that talks about, hey, these are the, like you, you mentioned cilantro. Like my wife can taste soap. I can't. So I love cilantro. She can't stand it. Yep. You know, it's, it's like those kind of things at when or how you are, are you implementing like DNA and kind of our makeup into what you're selecting for folks? We are totally ready for it. But is the science ready for it in this case? Not necessarily, right? Because there are a few things where you actually have genetic markers that will tell you this person cannot taste the soap in cilantro. I'm one of those. It's actually a defect we have uh, genetically that we cannot taste the soap. It is there, the flavor. Uh, the saponines are there, but we just can't taste them. Um, so that is a genetic marker that could actually, you know, we could actually forecast that this person, based on the DNA, they would not like cilantro. Um, there are such things as super tasters uh, who genetically are prone to not like bitter and not like cilantro and have less sort of aromatic uh, preferences. So there are certain aspects that where it works, but for the bulk of choices that you're making, uh, it's not genetic markers that's driving it. It's your either your phenotype, which are basically a layer below the the genes that are that, that you cannot measure just by your uh, your genes, or it's based on your microbiome. Uh, so basically, uh, based on, on habits you created in the past and the way your gut is reacting back into your brain and how you're starting to like or not like things. And then there's all the trained behavior that's purely neural, so purely based on your brain. So for all these reasons. The DNA itself will not do so much. Being like, you know, fecal samples that will get your microbiome to learn will not do so much by itself either. And it's very difficult. Asking questions works pretty well. It gets you quite far the, far part of the way, right? But yeah, we're waiting for the day when someone comes back like uh, 22 and me and say, we found out, you know, genetic markers for 200 ingredients that you would like or not like. And that's the day where we're totally ready for working with them because we do have a tool that says, Given your preferences, here are recipes that will always be inspiring you and showing some different, but adhering to your preferences. So getting those to those preferences in a smarter way than a survey, we would love, uh, but we haven't seen, or I haven't seen the, the science being there just yet, just based on, on DNA. I think that would be, look, I mean, to me, that's the huge, that's our future. I would imagine, you know, some people can't drink milk and, you know, yeah, I, I've long contended, my, my, I got a friend that can't drink milk. You know, I mean, I, he thinks he can, but I, I see he gets sick every time, you know, afterwards or something. So I think there's something going on there. And by the way, I think we're going to have to take out the fact that it's a defect that I have and not my wife. I've always told her that it was a defect that she had. That's a problem. <laughs> I, I think you've got it backwards. I'm not sure, but I, I, I'm going with my theory just so my wife can have I mean, it. I have the same defect, and I'm really happy about that defect. I love cilantro. I love the fact that I love cilantro. I, I live with that defect with a smile, and, and I think you should too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Let's just keep it to ourselves still. All right. A couple more questions on the business before we pause. This is really interesting to me. The monetization strategy. What is your monetization strategy? We thought long and hard about this and experimented with a lot of things. What we learned is actually, as I told you before, you learn a lot about a human when, when you know what they like to eat. Uh, you know, we know ourselves when we're standing in the supermarket and we're sort of looking at the aisle of the person next to us and seeing what they put up there. And we cannot help 
judging them positively and negatively based on what they put on the aisle, right? And we kind of feel like we know who they are based on what they buy there. And that goes for what people cook and eat as well. So actually, it's a really, really powerful data point for any uh, food company or even non-food company to know what their customers tend to eat because it puts their personas, gives strength to the personas, and they get to know better how to do marketing, how to do product development, how to talk to their customers. So for that reason, a, a big chunk of our monetization is actually to have food brands publish these recipe experiences for free. And they pay only to see data of what do my customers like. And based on these data points, they can build strategies. And we're helping them build those strategies as well. But the core thing is really to uh, put something out there that gets their customers happy and excited and builds their brand because they're doing something good for their customers. But at the same time, helps them capture a better understanding of who their customers are. And that's particularly valuable in food where, because food is quite cheap, we have very low touch points to our customers in food. Whether you're a food company or you're a retailer, it's not like you know your customers too well. Um, and therefore, you're really sort of hungry to understand what are people actually cooking in their homes in other ways than just through the transaction. Um, so for that reason, we're basically charging only for the databases we're coming back with of displaying what is it that people cook when they're their customer, because then we know a lot about them. Wow, very good. Who's your largest competitor? Yeah, it very much depends on the space you're in. Now, you, you can actually say in on this, when you we talk about the commercial model we just talked about, you would say our competitors are Nielsen IQ, who uh, you know looks at the sales data and retailers and builds customer uh, mappings. You can say it's Kantar or Gallup or JFK, who are these companies who basically build understandings of customers based on panels, whether you're doing these panel surveys and understanding who's your customer and, and build branding advice. Because on the value proposition of what we bring, uh, it is customer intelligence. So, so that's a customer there. But at the same time, you could also argue that our competitor are companies that build recipe experiences. And then it's, uh, you know, your Yumlis or Inets or even uh, HelloFresh of this world who build, build recipe experiences. But at the core, our customer is the food company who wants to know their customer better. So I would say your Nielsen IQ, your Kantar, your JFK, these kind of guys who build customer intelligence. So, you know, the interesting thing about that is I was listening to a guy that does financial planning. Um, his name is Peter Maluk, I think, creative planning. And he was talking about when he started his business, before he got into financial planning, he was in, he owned a bunch of record stores when he was younger. And the best learning experience he ever had was he bought all these record stores. He, he like expanded to like eight, had some uh, partners, bought them out, and then found out that his competitor was Napster at the time, put him out of business. I, I thought my competitor was across the street, but my competitor was something I didn't even know about. You know what I mean? And then, you know, like Walmart, they were competing against Target. Uh, turns out their competitor is Amazon. I guess one, one thing I'm thinking in the back of my mind is, I'm, you mentioned your competitors, but I wonder if there's something out there we're not thinking about. I don't know if, if you've thought of it from that perspective, of what could come up that, you know, could be a competitor that you're not even considering today. I don't know. Just an open-ended thought, I guess. I would put myself the other way, Ryan. I, I think we are the Napsters in this case. And actually, the, the case here is... <laughs> The case here is to say, if you are 
Nielsen IQ, who uh, earns a lot of money on just having data on what people buy in supermarkets and bringing back in databases and, and surveys. And you think you have this safe business because you're the ones who are sitting on all the data. You're not realizing that your data is outdated. Uh, you know, you get this data six months too late in a big consultancy project, whereas we can bring you data real time on what customers like and get you this experience in a much cheaper and much more efficient way. And it's for your customer, particularly your customers, not for like a generic customer in a survey or a panel. So I think we're the Napster in this case, and it's uh, Nielsen. That was a fantastic response. Hey, Michael, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time with us. Is there anything I always like to ask before I break? Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? Uh, we've been at it a while, but look, with food and technology, two of my favorite things, we could go on forever, I think. Totally could. I think, uh, you know, obviously, uh, given that becoming a big food geek, I think more questions on gastronomy is always good. Uh, <laughs> but I think we got we got plenty. I think one thing that I'm asked a lot that you might be intrigued about just because I almost always get this question is if we have had any sort of weird food pairings or weird setups that where our, our engine is suggesting something that you'd be finding counterintuitive. And I think one of those that, that we see that I've experienced again and again, I still I've made it as a, you know a part of my kitchen is a weird food pair which is zucchini and banana you don't normally cook with those two things together they're from completely different spaces but they popped up really really highly in our neural network so i started doing a little bit of research on it and realizing that actually they have a certain phenols so aromas in common and when they're in common, basically they go in sync in your brain and you like it and it totally works so if you go to your supermarket buy a banana and buy a zucchini just take a bite of each, <laughs> you'll realize, you feel right away, oh, there is something here. So a really nice okay. controversial dish is just a fresh salad with, uh, you know, a little bit of salt on, on, on cut uh, zucchini and banana, some toasted almonds. It has this citrusy flavor. So you, you put cilantro seeds in there, probably something like this would be really good. A bit of honey, a bit of lemon on top. And you have a beautiful dish that's made in like eight minutes and uh, and no one else have uh, tried it before beyond besides me, of course, because I just told you about it. <laughs> nice. He is a chef, Kate. He's, uh, he's become a chef. <laughs> he has become a chef. I mean, the way that just rolled off and then you just put that together and maybe some cilantro seeds because it's citrusy. It was it was so yeah. chef. He's using his hands too. Like it was perfect. I know. It's perfect. It, our it listeners can't see that, but Michael is using his hands as though he's preparing a dish for us right now. And my skepticism is high, but my willingness to try is higher. So we will it. we will give him a shot, at least here in my household. That's exactly where I want you to be. And generally, that's where we should be in the kitchen. It's where we have a little bit of grain of skepticism, but still try. Because that's where we get into a place where we really taste the food. And that comes back to yeah. the mental health and what food can do. It's it's one of those parts of the day where we can get out of our brains and into our senses. And if we just go by a static tense, 10 recipes, we just taste the usual and we don't think about when we eat. But if we suddenly have zucchini and banana on our plate, we're going to be tasting the food and we're going to be fully present in that moment. And that is meditation. So in that moment, actually, without even uh, trying to nap or trying to meditate, you meditate it. Uh, so that's a little trick for you all. I think he summed it all up, didn't he? He went right back to the start and put a, a stamp on it. Nicely done, beautiful. Michael. Beautifully done. Pure <laughs> luck there. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. This has been a very interesting discussion. We're going to have to keep in touch with you to, to, to see how you progress and, and what you learn using data, AI, and how it, uh, it kind of influences our food choices. So thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much. Hey, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Please hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear back from you. Please rate us. It does matter. Until then, I will talk to you on the podcast. See you next time. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.